It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. Joining me today is Jay McBain. Jay is CEO of Channelize, a global software company that is reinventing how vendors drive channel partner sales and loyalty. And they have a SaaS platform that includes two components, a channel candy, the world's largest mobile-first product for partners, and partner sales, as well as Optics, the first indirect sales workflow product to help sellers with predictive analytics and leverage big data science to drive more sales. Jay, welcome to Accelerate. Well, thank you, Andy, and um, it's a pleasure to be here. So uh, take a minute, introduce yourself, and I will say, just by way of preference for people listening, you've got a frighteningly long list of accomplishments and achievements for someone so young, <laughs> and I'd mm-hmm. go over them, but it only make me feel more inadequate, so uh, maybe you can brag about yourself for a while. Uh, no, no need to brag, but uh, there is a way to uh, get yourself on top 20 lists and top 30 lists, and that's something I learned uh, uh, pretty early on. I spent most of my life actually in big business. Uh, I joined IBM as an intern uh, in 1994, and uh, I was behind, if you've ever called a 1-800 tech support line, you know, back in the 90s, I might have been the person that picked up the call. That that was my internship. It turned into some sales roles, always really focused around channel, channel partners, alliances. You know, 20 years later, fast forward, and uh, I'm now CEO of a channel-focused SaaS company that uh, has some pretty cool things that, uh, that we're doing to help you know, organizations of all size work through these indirect sales channels. So what was the impetus for this, the founding of Channelize? Uh, we had a couple of things. Um, you know, one thing is, and we'll probably talk more about this, but the channel is a little bit of the redheaded stepchild in the sales conversation. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't come up, sometimes it's an afterthought. Um, and it's, it's one of these things that the tools that have been created for channel professionals uh, are, many of them are, are antiquated. They, you know, go back to the 1980s, 1990s, um, and they're not getting the advantage of, you know, many of the, you know, big data tools, mobile tools, social tools that are available today to sellers. And uh, we saw that as an opportunity. The one statistic that really drove, you know, this idea was that 95% of partners, these are the people that resell for you, they could be retailers, they could be resellers, wholesalers, they don't come to you anymore. They don't come to your portals, they don't come to learn, unless you force them to, um, they're not out there, you know, you know, coming to you every day uh, trying to trying to get better at what they do. So the world's become a push world. We thought through some combination of social and mobile technologies, we could put the right information in the palms of their hands and you know, start driving some better collaboration you know, with the uh, people that they represent. So you're saying for the role for the channel account manager, the channel manager inside a company, is it's become even more difficult to get their channel partners, the resellers, to sort of comply with their mandates or their program, you know, enroll in their programs or whatever they're rolling out to the channel. Absolutely. And it's just, it's nothing, you know, to their discredit. It's just the fact that the world has become so noisy, so cluttered that, um, you know, many of these partners are just trying to stay in business themselves. They're trying to establish their own brands. They may represent big companies like an HP or an IBM or Microsoft, but they don't have the time 
you know, to go out and spend, you know, hours on end educating themselves, getting up to date on the programs. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit of a risk, and you know, I always flip over to cars because most of us have bought a car in the, in the last few years. You know, you tend to know more than the car dealer rep when you walk in, you know, to buy a car. And it's just this fact that you know, being inundated with that much information, it's very much. Uh, it's very difficult to stay ahead of the customer. So, the challenges, though, for channel management, as you write about, it, you know, it's more than move beyond sort of the old relationship management. You know, there's a lot of parts to it that the moving parts they have to manage. But if the if the channel partners are sort of less cooperative, then how do you how do you begin to fix that? Uh, well, a couple of things. Uh, you know, one thing is, you know, I'm not sure if they're trying to be less cooperative. I think that uh, it's one of these things that there's just not enough hours left in the day. And I don't think vendors have, uh, and these are the manufacturers and, and people that have partners, I don't think they've done them a service with getting the right information into their hands, you know, at the right time. So, you know, it's become this colossal waste of time trying to find the right information and zero in to, to get what you want. So a lot of people have given up. Hmm. So you've released optics really to sort of deal with that part of the, or part of that, that's challenge, if you will, for channel account managers to be able to support their partners. Yeah, and you know, we see the world, and when you look at the channel, it's really two different worlds. Uh, you've got these partners that are retailers, uh, resellers that are out on the street, representing you as a company, selling to your end customer. And uh, that was one side of our business, which was really channel candy, getting them the right information, the right tools, the right incentives, all the right things at the right time. So, you know, perhaps they'll recommend your product over your competitors. Uh, but the second thing was really the people that manage channels. Uh, you, you mentioned channel account managers, different channel professionals. Uh, they're kind of, their hands are a little bit tied as well in terms of, you know, they've got big territories. They don't have great tools in terms of knowing who to talk to, what to talk about, and really, you know, when to talk to them. And, you know, when we looked at the research and, you know, we started collecting a lot of data around uh, partners, you know, we learned that, um, and again, I'll flip back to cars because most people get the car dealership scenario. Uh, the impact that a partner has on whether you sell your product or not is much larger than, you would, than what you would guess, just looking at the numbers. The last time that you went in to buy a car, and if the salesperson was rude to you or you know, ignored you or you just didn't get a good feeling, you know, what happens is you may not buy the car from them, you may not buy the car from that dealership, but more often than not, you're not gonna buy the Ford, you're gonna go buy a Chevy. Just because of that experience, it could turn you off uh, a manufacturer altogether. And yeah. when, you, when you sell computers, when you sell software, when you sell healthcare equipment, when you sell uh, really anything, financial instruments, insurance uh, in, um, products, that resides in every industry where you know, these partners are representing you as a, as a company. And uh, if they turn people off or if they don't have the selling skills, uh, you're going to lose the deal regardless of what your product price plays or promotions. Well, you're right, and I think to provide context for this conversation we're having is, as you had mentioned earlier before we, we came on the air, that, uh, what, 75% of, well, you give the statistic, about percentage of commerce is done in, through indirect sales versus direct sales. Yeah, it's 75% of all world trade 
according to the World Trade Organization. If you look at it a different way, 60% of all US GDP overall is done indirectly through different uh, routes to market and go-to-market strategies. So as much as we focus on the direct customer sale, uh, the chances of that being some sort of uh, convoluted, uh, multi-party you know, type of process is, uh, is, is more likely than, than not. Than not, right. So optics, is, as you have, is a predictive analytics tool, which certainly we've, we've talked to guests on the show that have predictive analytics tools for B2B direct sales. So how, how does this help the channel account manager in an indirect environment? It's interesting because the algorithms are very different. Uh, and you know, we have a sales organization here, and we use some great predictive analytics, analytics tools here. You know, we, we know when to call somebody when they're more likely to pick up the phone. We know what leads are you know, more likely to convert. We have you know, some really nice tools that help our salespeople. Uh, but what we don't have, and most companies don't have, is an ability to work their channels into that. So again, knowing, for example, the confidence score, whether you're gonna win a deal or not, um, the influence that a partner has on that is, is pretty large. Um, so it goes beyond how good your rep is, how trained they are, how equipped they are, and all that type of stuff. It actually goes into the partner itself. Do they have a history of you know, success in these kind of deals, these kind of partners, this geography, this industry? Uh, deal size. Deal size. What are their uh, stages? How long do they spend per stage? What are their sales? I mean, there are at least 65 data points that we pull in from the channel in particular to add to the confidence score, whether you're going to close the deal or not. Which is really interesting because, and one thing you, you talk about on the website is that about the product is that you actually then, through the predictive analytics, you can sort of help compensate for maybe the less than uh, perfect implementation of or use of CRM, adoption of CRM by the partner. And absolutely. So, you know, when you're a channel account manager, and you may have 100 partners in your territory, so you've got the 80 20 you know, problem where you know, you're managing maybe 20% of the partners that hopefully are driving 80% of your revenue. You have no idea what's going on with the other 80. You know, we have, you know, part of the predictive tool is we can alert you when things happen. And it, you know, maybe with the partner themselves, it could be big data, it could be happening on a social sentiment, uh, it could be happening on a Brad Street credit score changes. I mean, there's a, thousands of things that could be going on with your partner that may affect whether you're going to win that deal or not. Yeah, I'm right. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, could, I was just going to say, they could be completely out of your control. You know, we're talking people changes, we're talking organizational changes, strategic changes. These are things that may impact your deal. And unless you're notified and alerted to that, you know, you won't be able to take action. And you may be chasing a deal that, you know, now has almost no chance of winning, you know, based on those changes. And, uh, you know, given up the opportunity cost of working on the things that matter. Yeah, well, it seems like one of the the problems that I've seen with channels is, is for instance, I had a client that had a nationwide franchising organization as well as some resellers, and they were selling a product that going here from thirty-five to sixty thousand dollars, so thirty-five k to thirty sixty thousand. And yeah, the eighty twenty distribution absolutely applied. But as more the more successful the franchises became, the more independent they wanted to be, and the less they wanted to reveal all their details in the CRM to to the home office. 
Absolutely. So you know, we've tried to augment that, you know, perhaps lack of sharing with some very specific, you know, actionable uh, type of um, uh, type of um, alerts and, and notifications that, you know, if we can guide um, channel account managers or the people selling with channels, if we can guide them not only you know who to talk to, but when to talk to them. Uh, the other interesting thing is that when you analyze direct sales, you know that every rep is slightly different or maybe um, significantly different in terms of how they work the stages, how long they take to you know, sell a deal, you know, how many um, deals that have a high confidence rate that they lose. I mean, there, you could think of dozens of different factors. When you actually overlay the channel and there's 65 additional factors that we put in, the confidence you know, score actually goes much higher. Uh, the product that you know, we've now you know, put into customers' hands has a 97% accuracy rate on forecast. Now that we're pulling in the channel-related data that perhaps the vendor themselves don't have any control over. Huh, so 97, I mean, that, that, that's a big claim. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, that's before you know, the machine learning and everything else. But um, when you take in the factors and its history, it's the, it's the, you know, the time, it's the age, it's the stages, all the traditional things you take in on direct sales. When you actually look at your partners as well, uh, they also have similar metrics, but you know specific ones to them as well, that uh, you know produce the whole story mm-hmm. of whether you're going to win a deal or not. Wow, I mean, I think in most sales environments, if you could have a system that produced a forecast at 97% accuracy, that would be, people would be knocking on your door for now until eternity to get that product. Yeah, and that's one of the big selling points, but the other one is the real time. You know, as a sales manager at the start of the quarter, you have to go through every single one of your reps, you have to know who the sandbaggers are, you have to kind of right. um, adjust up or down based on history, what you know of that rep and their performance. And, uh, you know, basically at the end, you throw throw your thumb into the wind and and make your call. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, You know, what we like to say is let the computer make a call at the same time, but there's no thumb in the wind. We basically look at every single deal and every single aspect of every deal, and we roll that up into a real-time forecast. So if you looked at that an hour later, the, the forecast would be different, albeit slightly, but as you know, time kills deals. Right. And all of those external factors that I talked about, you know, people changing jobs and things happening in the industry. If you were working yesterday on a deal on Cisco, either they were your partner or they were your customer, that announcement of you know, job losses yesterday right. would impact your chances of winning this deal. Trying to sell something into Cisco right now when they're going through this turmoil and everybody today finding out whether they have jobs, you know, will delay your deal. So how do you how do you make that decision? How much weighting to give that? Uh, a lot of it's you know based on history. You know the interesting thing I'll keep thinking on Cisco. They had five job actions in the last five years. Right. So if they are one of your regular customers or one of your regular partners, there may be some pattern match. Okay. So you could uh, see based on previous announcements that delayed deals by thirty to forty-five days, and you factor that in. Yeah, and you might see a seasonality thing because every by the way, their year end is in July. So come August 17th is when they do their earnings announcement, right? Earnings announcement, which yesterday they announced you know, 5,500 jobs. 
uh, we'll see probably around this time through, let's say, end of September, you know, you haven't won any business over the last five years due to this. So if you think that there's you know, anything in your pipeline closing in that time period, we're going to automatically change that scenario. I like that. That's very clever. Yeah, I, I had one client that was selling through HP as a channel partner, and yeah, they every June they did uh, expense control. Must have been a, a manager's bonus period or something during that time. It seemed like, yeah. and yeah, if you thought you were gonna get a, an order in June, yeah, no, it just yeah. wasn't gonna happen. So and IBM, IBM is in January, and you know, you look at every one of your partners, and there's going to be you know patterns that emerge over time. That you know, we're just talking about a couple of different factors out of the 65, but just patterns in this area will directly affect whether you know a deal will be won and when it will be won. Yeah. All right. So I want to I want to talk about an article that you wrote now that that I thought was fascinating, and actually it's a couple articles that I'm drawing from a couple that you talk about this trend about that I really think sales professionals and managers really need to understand and you know aspiring entrepreneurs even is that you talked about hyper focused vectorization versus verticalization and i besides loving the technology um why don't you explain what you meant by that? Because you know the implications for decision making are are pretty astonishing, especially if you're in an IT related field, a SaaS software company, or whatever. Um, it's decisions aren't being made the way you think they are. Yeah, there's been some big changes, and by the way, these changes have come around just recently. This hasn't been like the cloud or other types of trends that we've kind of seen over the course of a decade. Um, what the the cloud has basically done, and you know the offshoot of the cloud is SaaS based companies. Uh, Mark Anderson wrote that you know kind of famous article in the Wall Street Journal right. five years ago that software you know is eating the world, and he was pointing to you know the prevalence which later on would become Uber and Airbnb and basically software startups that eat entire industries. And we saw that in music, we've seen that in movies, we've seen that you know as you walk through every industry. And um, well, I think know, that's I think it's worth telling people too. They don't perceive of Uber and Airbnb and others being software companies, but they fundamentally are software companies. Exactly. And, you know, they took on and iTunes took on the music industry. And I mean, these are software based things that have changed, you know, changed companies. Physical industries. Physical industries. They've transformed, right. And, uh, you know, the offshoot to that was that, you know, every company is becoming a technology company. So when you go and Airbnb's competitors like Hilton and Holiday Inn and you know, all these you know, hospitality companies, when, if you read their annual reports, I mean, they're basically technology companies now. And uh, you know, those people that work there, the consultants, the partners, all the ecosystem around these big companies are really focused as technology companies now. And it, it's changed every industry downstream. So I always, you know, I come out of the IT and telco world, but, you know, I'll flip over and talk about accountants. There's 160,000, you know, financial accounting type companies, you could call them partners, in the United States. In the last 18 months, it's flipped over 50% of them now resell software and provide IT related services around the software. And when they were surveyed last year by CompTIA, they actually reported that 85% said that you know, within you know, this year or next year, they're going to be basically technology companies as opposed to financial companies. 
you know, there's a direct example of technology or software eating the world and every company becoming a technology company. So the landscape or the ecosystem of where you buy technology and how you buy technology has completely changed. The one statistic, and this is the one that I've written about more than any other, and Gartner Group has been kind of tracking it, is that 72% of all decisions now around technology are made by lines of business executives. These are VPs of marketing, VPs of sales, operations, finance, HR, manufacturing, across you know, the 10 or 12 lines of business. They're making three quarters of all technology decisions, whereas five years ago, they were making 10% of decisions. It's a complete change in how end users are and customers are making decisions. And Gartner is forecasting that 72% number going to 90 within a few years. In other words, everything is going to be made at the line of business level, and IT is going to have very little influence and very little you know, decision-making ability you know, as we go forward into the next decade. So when you think about, yeah, decision-making dynamics, because, yeah, so much of our economy now is selling technology-related, IT-related um, products and services that it always, as you said, five years ago, you wanted to buy Salesforce.com, you had to have IT involved. Now what you're saying is, yeah, you don't necessarily have to have them involved. Right, and, you know, I kind of wrote a previous article that uh, I kind of called out this shadow, it used to be called shadow IT, or, or rogue right. IT was the labels it was given. And what I kind of argued is it's been given a new shadow channel that goes along with it. So every one of those 160,000 accountants or the 120,000 marketing firms, or I could go on and on across every industry, they've become the technology salespeople that sell you, you know, salesforce.com. They're the ones that implement it. You know, Salesforce, for example, has 695 partners. Uh, they sell over $20 billion in services, almost a four to five to one ratio for what Salesforce sells. Right. So you can think of the integration and the security and all the stuff that layers on Salesforce and the consulting wrapped around it is worth four to five dollars of the MRR that you know Salesforce is earning. And this is a shadow channel. These are not these channel partners. They're companies like Blue Wolf, who was acquired by IBM, yep. Aperio, it's Accenture, it's Deloitte. I mean, it's big companies in there as well. But many of them are mid-sized to smaller companies. But they don't specialize in things like security or infrastructure, building servers in your back room, or making sure that you're compliant with industry regulation. I mean, these aren't traditional channel partners per se, but they are people that traditionally would have sold you uh, consulting, but now they're selling you software. And they're building the software, you know, and customizing it and tuning it for your shop. Well, and the technology now is making it so easy for people to become technology companies or offer technology solutions or to innovate in ways, in much more specialized ways than they were before. And you gave a good example. As you said, uh, you know, a traditional supplier may be specializing in certain industries such as healthcare, you know, losing to firms that hyper-specialize. You gave an example of someone saying they hyper-specialize in lead generation marketing at mid-sized hospitals in New York State, for instance. I mean, that, that level of specialization opened up by technology provides so much opportunity for entrepreneurs and salespeople. It absolutely does. And, you know, in my industry, kind of in the IT and telco related channel, you know, I was putting up alarm bells to say that, you know, over the last 
two decades, there's been a real push to um, verticalize. You know, you can't just go out there and be all things to all people. You've really got to specialize. So, you know, there's several of these companies that said, yeah, you're absolutely right. And they went, in, in this case, your example, they became healthcare specialists. So they could tell you what HIPAA stood for and the High Tech Act, and you know, they could kind of walk through Obamacare with you and all the different aspects of healthcare. And then in the end, they wanted to install a server and plug it into the network and do the firewall and secure it and do traditional things to healthcare you know, customers by just being smarter in that industry. And now what I'm you know, kind of arguing in this article, the difference between verticalization and vectorization, I just made up a word, no, but ve it. vectors, there's more than just the industry. Uh, you need to be a line of business specialist. So I, you know, your example there was, was marketing. You're talking to the VP of marketing. You can't just sit down and say, hey, I know high tech and HIPAA and I'm pretty smart. You know, they're gonna ask you, well, how, I, I don't care about any of that. How do you get any more leads? I want more people walking into my ambulatory care clinic, you know, starting next Monday. And, you know, if you're sitting there going, biddy, 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 it's, it's, you're not gonna win the deal. The next person that walks in that says, well, listen, here's how to get more leads in your environment, your size of, you know, clinic in, in New York, in this case, upstate New York, here's what I did for the last four clinics that compete with you uh, and how I drove, you know, 30% more, you know, walk-in business. That's a different level of specialization than, you know, anyone has seen. And you will have enough business that, you know, you could swim in a lane one or two over if you needed to. You know, maybe a bigger clinic, smaller hospital. You could go a little bit wider. Instead of just lead nurturing, you might do some more top of the funnel type of, uh, type of work. But, you know, if you stay pretty close to those vectors, uh, you're going to have enough business to, uh, uh, to provide, you know, years and years of uh, paying the mortgage. Yeah, well, I mean, the temptation to swim in another lane, as you talk about, as long as you, I think, keep maintain, establish and maintain that specialization, then you know, you're not going to have the price pressures you might have, the competitive pressures, because you know, you're describing an environment where there's, which I think is, is what is going to come to pass, is such broad opportunities and such broad opportunities for specialization that um, it may actually, in some interesting way, may actually reduce competition in some respects. Yeah, and it's interesting. So now you've got this, you know, example of somebody in with the VP of marketing, two offices over in the finance, you know, let's say the um, VP of finance at that clinic, they're not talking to that person because, you know, they're more specialized or vectorized in leads and, and driving, you know, marketing success that they're now talking to a very specific financial based, you know, person who's recommending you know, NetSuite, for example, because they just installed it at three similar type clinics and how it's going to drive better, you know, financial ERP type of uh, connections and, and lower their costs. So, you know, in that, let's say mid-sized clinic, you could have a dozen type of channel partners engaged at all the different lines of business. And, um, you know, they may or may not be working with each other. Yeah, and I think that's more likely than not. And so you yeah. you sort of do some some rough math on the back of the envelope, saying, "Well, gosh, you have 
280 sub-industries and 10 lines of business and six segments and 20 technologies that, that based on the fact we have, as you said, close to 100,000 sort of SaaS-type vendors today, it could be 10 times that in, in 10 years or 20 years. Correct. And I think this is, you know, we're just seeing the early stages of this now. I mean, the permutations and combinations to this thing are mind-blowing. And every single permutation, you know, you take every one of these vectors that if you're an entrepreneur, that's a place where you can start. You can go win, go win your first five or 10 customers locally, build yourself some software IP. In other words, you know, learn how NetSuite will somehow connect to that Marketo thing in the example we just gave and build yourself, you know, some sort of dashboard or some sort of interconnect or, or, uh, or, or something that's proprietary that you can actually, you know, wrap a, a brand and a logo around. And all of a sudden you've taken your first five or 10 customers in a consulting business and now you're selling to ambulatory care clinics across the country and maybe across the world. And you've just built yourself a, you know, a $50 million SaaS business in one of those vectors. Yeah. Have you ever read uh, Jay Samet's book, Disrupt You? Absolutely. I mean, one, this, of my <laughs> one of my favorites, too. And this aligns with it so perfectly. Uh, actually, I just interviewed Jay uh, earlier for the show. I mean, that this is, if you want to understand how to prepare yourself, you know, the people in the audience, how to prepare yourself to take advantage of these opportunities that, that Jay McBain is talking about, pick up a copy of this book, Disrupt You, by, by Jay Samet, S-A-M-I-T, who also has been a guest on the show, and... Uh, it'll give you a game plan for how to how to orient your thinking to take advantage of it. Yeah, and you had interviewed one of my um, investors earlier, Nick Poulos from Bowery Capital. And if you you know if you're deciding to go to get funding today and you know sit in front of venture capitalists or angel investors, and you're trying to paint a picture of the next Facebook or the next Uber in front of them, you're you're going to get shown the door. Um, you know your chances of success are just beyond their risk tolerance of, of what they would do. But if you start to paint a picture of, you know, an, in a sub-industry by a size sector, by, you know, a certain geography, if you start to paint a picture of where there's a big opportunity and, you know, you're not painting, a, you know, the next uh, Fortune 500 company, but, you know, you're, you're actually drawing something up that could be a $100 million business, you're going to get a lot of eyes and ears out there in the investment community. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, great. Well, gosh, we go to the last segment of the show. I've got some standard questions I ask all my guests. And uh, the first one for you, Jay, is if I think you said you've listened to the show before, so you might know what's coming, is is hypothetical scenario in which you have just been hired as VP of sales at a company whose sales have stalled out. CEO and board are anxious to get things turned around. You know, admittedly, can't do a turnaround in a day. But what two things could you do your first week on the job that would have the biggest impact? I've actually been put in this position a couple of times before, and I'll tell you what I did do. Uh, Great. I, first, first of all, I'm very data-driven. So the times outside of customer time, you know, outside of 9 to 5, you know, from 5.01 p.m. through 8.59 a.m., I would immerse myself in data. I would ask the business to dump, you know, whatever CRM data they had, whatever financial data they had, and I would sit in front of, you know, basically spreadsheets and systems, trying to make sense of, uh, you know, key metrics. And we're not talking high-level KPIs here. It's get an understanding of the flow, get an understanding of the pipe, get an understanding of, um, 
you know, how sales are, are generated historically. And, you know, walking in into the first week of a job, uh, it would just be a total immersion. Uh, the second part of it, and uh, again, I've done it a couple of times, is um, spending the time between nine to five with your people. Uh, if you've got sales reps, uh, spending time listening. You know, ask enough open-ended questions, but try to spend 90% of your time listening. And if you get a chance to go on the road and visit a couple customers or join into a couple of you know, customer calls, even if it's silent, um, start to immerse yourself on that side of the business as well. At the end of the week or two, you put the data and the kind of the real world together, put your notes together, and you probably have a 15-day report you can give back to your new CEO. Love it. Great answer. All right, some rapid-fire questions. You can give me one-word answers. Elaborate if you wish. The first one is when you, Jay, are out selling channelized services, what's your most powerful sales attribute? Persistence. Who's your sales role model? Well, Leah Hikoka. What's one book that every salesperson should read? The Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell. Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell. Good book. All right, last question. Tough one. What music's on your playlist these days? I've got a really, so you've read my blog, my personal blog. I've got a really odd one that, um, I'm very data-driven myself. This is gonna be my long answer. I'm very data-driven myself, so I actually keep track of my top 100 songs in order. <laughs> and I also publish them on my blog. And they, you know, they change each year. Um, and you know, the 600 songs that are on my quote-unquote iPod, yeah. I also publish those every year. So they're, they're public knowledge. But when you actually do the data analysis, uh, somehow, somewhere, I'm, I like sad core music. So, you know, the tear jerking, you know, breakup songs. Right, right. For, for, for whatever reason, you know, over half of my 82 favorite songs are like sad songs. So I, I don't know what that really means, but perhaps I'm so logical in life that, you know, emotion takes over. So you married with family? I'm uh, married. I've got four beautiful daughters. <laughs> What's your wife think about your 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 preference for sad breakup songs? She just rolls her eyes and continue, <laughs> continues on with life. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, Jay, thanks so much for being on the show today. Tell folks how they can learn some more about uh, Channelize and also get in contact with you. Well, great. I'd love to uh, love to talk to folks and uh, channel is, is a big thing. I mentioned to you at the start of the call that out of the 230 podcasts uh, before this one, uh, the word channel, partner, or alliance uh, doesn't show up. So, uh, you know, we're hoping to drive some more channel conversation. If it is, you know, whether you're a hybrid seller or whether you're, you know, a channel account manager and, and do this 100% of the time, we'd love to talk to you. Our website is channelize.com. It's the word channel, E-Y-E-S dot com. Uh, my personal email is J-A-Y-M at channelize.com. You can email me directly. Love to set up some time to chat. Great. Well, thanks again, Jay. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate a part of your daily routine, whether you listen to your commute, in the gym, or make it part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Jay McBain, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your sales. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. 
For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. 